This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Welcome to season six of the podcast. Today, we're talking with Ghassan Haddad of Lime about Lime's strategy and operations in Europe. Ghassan serves as Lime's head of public policy and communications for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Ghassan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little about your background, where you grew up, and how you came to be involved with micromobility? Sure. I'm actually from Lebanon originally, and I've lived in various countries, and today Amsterdam is home. Over time, I just went from being a management consultant in the Middle East, advising governments, to jumping on ship with Uber about six years ago to run public policy for them in the Middle East. That meant working with governments across the region to explain what Uber was and try to support them in in opening up the markets. I also always felt a little bit European. I grew up in a French-speaking family. I went to French school. I love European languages. I speak a number of them. So at heart, I was always European, though I was not. And Uber gave me the opportunity to move three years ago. Unfortunately, in 2020, I got a bit sick, which kind of made me think about my priorities in life, what I would like to do. And I really wanted to go back to something a bit more entrepreneurial, smaller in scale than what what Uber had become back then. And Lime was kind of the little brother on the side that I thought was very cool. They were doing some interesting things in the small spaces, particularly with like electrified mobility, trying to change cities in Europe and taking people away from cars. So that's how I kind of fell into it and got very excited about the team that's at Lime and decided to join almost a year ago. It's been pretty rock and roll. I joined in the middle of the first wave of COVID. So there are even people on my team I never met in person before. So exciting times. And what is your role at Lime today? Today, I lead public policy and communications for EMEA. So that's Europe, Middle East and Africa. Essentially, that is the team that is representing the company externally, either towards governments or media. And internally, we advise the business on kind of which markets to go to, how do we work with governments, how to make sure we do things right everywhere we operate. That is a little bit about what my team does. So Lime started in the U.S. and has expanded across the world. Can you give us an overview of the countries and cities where Lime is operating in Europe and and the Middle East? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, around the world, we're on over 150 cities in the world. We are one of, we are the global leader in micromobility. We're the only one who actually has operations on almost all continents from the US to LATAM to Europe, as well as Asia Pacific. So within Europe, we're in over 60 cities in Europe and over 15 countries. So the majority of the biggest capitals that you can think of, we operate in today. And we operate mostly with scooters, but in the last year or so, we started to expand pretty rapidly on the bike side. And we just announced not so long ago that we will be expanding an e-moped offering as well. How has Lime chosen the countries and cities in Europe where it has expanded? Do you look at density, bike infrastructure, regulatory? How are you making these decisions about where to go? Yeah, I think primarily was density is is important, but also the the city infrastructure, how people, what the culture is with regards to micromobility, bikes, how many people use cars, but really what drives everything for us is how do we make sure we give people an alternative to private cars? Essentially, how do we get them to move within the city in short distances with an electrified vehicle? And that's where it all started. And, and today, we really look at opportunities to be able to expand our offer. So we are already in most of those cities providing scooters. Where can we also provide bikes? How easy it is to support 
how responsive are people? What's the demand like? Because we also want to make sure that this business remains sustainable, financially speaking, also, uh, so that we can always serve cities and and not promise certain things in a year or two not be here anymore. How do you think about whether a market is viable economically? What are the calculations that you think about and whether a business makes sense? Are you looking at the number of operators, number of scooters allowed? It, it really goes down to kind of like what we said, density, usage, and purchasing power, essentially. That combination, and the more the city is dense and there's uh, no alternatives to cars, the more likely that is to be successful. And then it's a matter of how well do you operate it. It's pretty easy for people to get into this type of industry. It's pretty hard to actually do a good job at it. And, and I'd love to say that Lime is like one of the best in the world at actually operating these services. So that combination is what we look at is how is the market like? What's the consumers and citizens behavior? And how do we make sure when there is a demand and there is a need for it, we do it in the best way possible to ensure that we are able to, to continue to thrive as a business. Many in the U.S. feel that European cities offer a more hospitable environment to micromobility because the cities were built before the car. Many have an existing biking culture, but other countries have rejected scooters altogether in favor of bikes. How do you see infrastructure and culture affecting the adoption of micromobility in different parts of Europe? Yeah, it's a great question. I really love to see the differences between countries and maybe let's take a first step at US, Europe. So you're right. Streets in Europe were designed for horse carts, not for cars. We don't have avenues. We don't have highways or freeways. It's really very tiny, narrow streets on average. And also cities are more walkable in Europe. So there's more of a culture of not using your car, using public transportations, using alternative modalities. Whether in the US, it's, I'm not extremely familiar with it, but my impression would be it's more... Uh, car first type design. So that's kind of where the differences start. And then within Europe, you still have differences that are both infrastructural and cultural. So some cities are more advanced than others with regards to investments in bike lanes. So Nordic countries, be it like the Netherlands or Denmark, Copenhagen, are very, very progressive in the sense of investment in infrastructure, bike adoptability. Whereas other cities are now catching up, especially with COVID, people realize they wanted a safe, socially distant way to move around the city bikes scooters were offering that type of service and that's why we've seen our business actually do quite well over the summer of last year when europe was open before the second wave of lockdown and we were able to be profitable because there was quite a bit of demand for that cities were starting to invest more in infrastructure and that started to encourage people to make that shift from using cars to go around or public transport that were kind of on reduced service to bikes and scooters and finally, it's a matter of culture. Some cities in Europe are have historically been pro or more prone to using bikes like Copenhagen or Amsterdam or Netherlands in general. But cities are catching up. There's a, a boom in e-bike sales across Europe. With the new infrastructure, uh, you see more and more people in Paris and Berlin and other cities starting to use that. And I see very small signs of that happening in the U.S. as well. But really, Europe is, is kind of where it's at with regards to pushing micromobility forward. What are European cities getting right about the challenges of adding shared scooters to perhaps an existing biking culture, mostly owned bikes? Yeah, different cities are doing different things. I think cities in Europe had a bit of a hangover, if you allow me to say, from the days of Uber or the days of Ofo and Mobikes or other bike sharing operators where this kind of um, 
rush to come in first and ask for, for forgiveness later. So when scooters came to be in Europe, it was a bit, we didn't want to see kind of more bikes thrown in canals or more bikes thrown in the city. They didn't want to relive the same experiences in the past. So some cities were pretty defensive at first. There was a lot of resistance from a regulatory perspective, from enforcement perspective, but also people didn't believe whether the scooters were going to be a viable mode to go around the city. People believe that it used to be just a joyriding tool for tourists to go around. And tourists do use it to go around the city. However, with the pandemic, we realized that actually a lot of people within the city were using it to commute and it was a socially safe distant way to do so. So the mindset is starting to shift. And essentially what's been happening in Europe that you have a little bit of a three categories. You have cities that have regulated in various shapes or form, like Paris, where France has determined a law at national level that allowed cities to understand what kind of the remits they have in order to regulate scooters within their perimeter of uh, jurisdiction. You have cities that are currently uh, legalizing, so the UK is one of them. The country allowed a year trial for scooters, and then each city is allowed to set up a tender or an RFP to request different ways to operate scooters within their territory. And you have cities or countries where currently is a little bit unregulated or extremely lightly regulated, like Germany, Eastern Europe, or even the Nordics like Sweden, Finland, Norway, and, and Denmark. And that's a little bit how things are. I think that what's going right is that setting in some guidelines or putting in, how do you say, guardrails on what are the rules within which you should be operating is the right way to go. And I think there's a number of cities that did that right. And also when cities choose three operators, that tends to be very good for cities, operators, and citizens, because that encourages some competition between operators. But it also allows consumers to get a diverse option of operators to use. There's competition on price, so it's good for consumers. And it's good for cities also, because if they're bound to one operator and that operator goes bankrupt, they lose the service that they were providing to cities. And that's the kind of model that we see cities converging to. But that is a little bit the lay of the land at the moment in Europe. Paris has certainly garnered a lot of attention with its new micromobility lanes and focus on the 15-minute city. What changes are you seeing in Paris? I don't know if you've had an opportunity to travel during COVID, but does it feel different? Are you hearing on the ground that the experience of being in Paris is different with the addition of these infrastructure changes? And has it affected Lyme's ability to operate? Paris is a super exciting city. It's, it's one of the world's capital for micromobility and one of the first to have actually regulated the space. We are extremely proud to have been chosen as one of the three operators to, to be able to serve Parisians for scooters. We're also one of the only operators in, in Paris to provide multiple options. So we have jump bikes that are back in, in the city of Paris which we're very excited about. So the, the, the city hall is very progressive on micromobility. The mayor is really pushing the 15-minute city, which I'm very excited about. I actually never drove in my life. I don't even have a license. So <laughs> using a bike, yeah, using a bike. I have an e-bike in Amsterdam. I go around the city with the bike. So when I see Paris turning into a more bike-friendly, scooter-friendly city, it's extremely exciting for me. It's a beautiful city. It's a wonderful experience to go around with that. So Mary Dalgo invested very heavily into new bike lanes. I haven't had the chance to go since COVID, but I do follow on the news and on Twitter. And one thing that really strikes me is a street called Rivoli Street, which is kind of along the, the Louvre. Um, and seeing just the amount of bikes and people using uh, scooters and, and mopeds in order to go around the city is frankly uh, extremely exciting. 
And also along the Seine, so along the river in the city, they have pedestrianized the streets, so you can actually walk or use your bike or your scooter to go around. And that really cut time in, in a lot of, you, you can cross the city in a, in a much faster time using micromobility. So that's fairly exciting. I think from a business perspective, the combination of us being able to provide a service that people need during COVID in combination with this new investment in infrastructure, we've seen people actually using our services a lot more, like 30% more usage during uh, COVID for 30% longer distances. So not only are they using it more, they're going further with our scooters and our bikes. And that is something we're very excited about. I think that combination of uh, better infrastructure also leads to much more safety is another thing we've seen. So before having bike lanes, people were biking in, in Paris, but it's a bit unsafe. You're, you're driving within traffic. It's generally congested. It's, it's quite difficult for you to be kind of just focused on where you're going. But today it is a lot safer. So I can't wait to see what it's like once lockdowns is over. You've mentioned a few times the different form factors that Lime has now introduced. Of course, Lime started as a shared pedal bike company in 2017, pivoted to electric scooters, and now has acquired the, the jump bikes. And as you mentioned, the e-mopeds now just starting to be introduced. How do you see the different form factors working in the different cities? I know places like Italy tend to have historically had a moped culture. Are you looking at things like that? How are you deciding where to roll out the different form factors? I mean, we would love to have them everywhere. I think the most exciting thing about the different form factors, if I could take a step back, if you go back to our vision of trying to get people to reduce the use of private cars, you need to give them multiple options. So we, we really wanna help people on the short distances. So like the zero to five mile type range, and the scooters were able to help people around the zero to one mile, one and a half mile kind of distance. The jump bikes, after we acquired them from Uber, were very exciting for a bit longer distances, so up to 2.5 miles. It's also for different type of audiences. Some people are more comfortable standing, some people are more comfortable sitting, younger people might prefer scooters, older people might prefer to sit on a bike. This gives options to a, ver a more varied and diverse audience to be able to use our type of services. And mopeds are the latest addition to kind of take you even a step further in, in the sense of distance. So, and that's what we're gonna focus on is how can we make sure those short distances are using a shared electrified type of transportation? And then how do we go into which city? It's a really a matter, it's a similar approach to what we've discussed before. It's where is their high density? Where would there be usage? Where is the cultural appropriate? Where has there already been adoption? Italy, like you said, is a very good example of that. We are currently announced that we will be launching in Paris first because Paris is one of the most progressive cities with regards to micromobility. We'd like to test and see how do people react? How does it count when we have a scooter, a bike, as well as a moped offering? Preliminary data is very exciting. We see that if you offer these three types of modalities, 70% of our users would say that they're actually more likely gonna use our service or one of our services instead of their cars. So that's what makes us really excited. And as soon as we are able to prove the model within the markets that we announced, we would like to then scale the business in a way that's responsible rather than kind of going everywhere and then figuring out how the business model works. We really need to get things right. And that's our way to kind of take things forward a step at a time at the moment. In the United States, shared scooter companies have faced a really heavy regulatory burden. 
For the reasons you mentioned earlier with Uber and some of the earlier experiences with shared micromobility, cities were very reluctant to adopt shared scooters. They've imposed numerous regulations that can be very expensive for scooter companies to operate. How would you compare the regulatory landscape in European countries in terms of the regulatory burden? Are you seeing permit fees, rules about geofencing, parking, helmets, and how is that affecting your operations? Mm, great question. <laughs> I like the use of the word burden. I think the, the difference between Europe and the US is that it doesn't feel so much as a burden. It isn't a burden. It's really, in Europe, the approach is different. It's a set of rules. And I think they're trying to solve for problems that matter to them. And I think the three common issues that you will see across the board in Europe and various orders of priority are really about parking, which I think the US also has. You have sustainability with regards to our operations, the scooter itself, but how are you contributing to the environment? That's a, a really big thing in Europe, which I don't think has the same amount of kind of weight in the US. And then you have safety, which maybe is a bit higher in the US than in Europe, or in Europe is still important, but I, I would break it down like that. And on these things, it's, it's quite understandable. So on, for example, parking, parking goes back to history, right? Bikes, bike sharing, that whole experience with free-floating bikes left a little bit of a sour taste in city's mouth. And, and kind of the early days of micromobility were a little bit going into that direction. But companies like ours learned from our mistakes, learned from other companies' mistakes. And today we're changing in that sense. We're listening a lot more to cities. We're working together with them to find solutions that are adapted to their needs. And for example, geofencing or checkout, mandatory checkout, making sure people uh, park their scooters in the right places, park their bikes in the right places. We educate them to make sure that if they're parking outside a zone, they get a message pop up saying, hey, be sure to park it in the, the adequate place. This is where it is. Or you cannot actually end your trip in that sense. So these are the kind of things we see and the, the regulatory I would say framework rather than burden in which we need to operate in. There aren't that many. It's not the same fees that apply in the U.S. to the same model in Europe. I think the U.S. has more of a per trip, per vehicle fee, et cetera. Europe is more about requirements within the regulations. It's more heavy in, in the sense of they almost prescribe to you how to operate the business versus telling you what the rules are and letting you run the business in, in a different way. But that is the nature of the difference between the U.S. and, and, and Europe, on, like culturally speaking. So you're not paying uh, per trip fees in cities in Europe? You pay licensing fees or certain licensing fees for the right to operate. It depends and it varies on cities. Some cities, it's uh, per vehicle. So, for example, you want to operate 500 vehicles, it would be X. Others, it's you get granted a permit and the permit costs a certain number, regardless of how many scooters you have. But those those tend to be fairly fair numbers rather than something that we would consider a burden. I think it's a fair amount for both parties and, and cities care a lot more about you respecting parking, you respecting the environment. For example, our scooters today last over five years. That is a significant investment from what it used to be in the early days where cities felt that maybe these were not the most environmentally friendly modes of transportation. We took that feedback into consideration. Over the years, our fourth generation scooter, which is built in-house, is one of the most environmentally friendly scooters in, in the market. So those are the type of things where, where the demands come in rather than on the actual pure fees and, and financials. Is Lime starting to use technology to try to comply with some of the rules that European cities have about whether it's geofencing or parking compliance? 
things of that nature, speed limits. Are you starting to use technology to monitor those issues? Yeah, absolutely. I think the absolutely there's things that will be coming up in the next uh, couple of months there I'm very excited about. Unfortunately, I can't talk about it right now, but we are using some of the technology. For example, the most interesting is the latest announcement on mopeds, for example. We took a lot of feedback from our users and cities and really built our moped offering leaning in heavily into safety. So it's one of the safest offerings that are out there on the moped space. Some of the technology we're using with regards to safety and parking on the moped is firstly, uh, the helmet box actually has a laser that tracks whether you actually took the helmet out of the box or not. So we know whether someone is using it or not. We then use our phones for you to take a selfie to prove that you're actually wearing the helmet before you're able to actually use it. So that's the type of technology use we're, we're putting in play to make sure that our vehicles are safe. The others were with regards to parking. So once you park a vehicle, you'll be able to take a picture and then prove that, that you are parking it in the right way. And the system will be able to make sure that you are actually parking in a parking zone uh, and not elsewhere and will not let you end the trip unless unless you park it adequately. So these are the type of things that, that we're working on and that have been announced as features to, for example, our new moped that's coming up. And more and more innovations will be coming in the next few months on kind of really particularly issues that are important to cities. We really shifted mindset. And we're really trying to put cities first and understanding their needs and really responding to it through uh, new technology features. It seems like there's a lot of innovation to come still in this area and that companies will come up with new ideas and, and new innovations to address these concerns. Is that fair? Absolutely. The, we're still, I think, in the infancy of this, this industry. I mean, we've seen it. It's been only three years where these, these, this, this space is growing. Micromobility has grown. Lime has grown faster than even Uber or Lyft in the sense of we reached 200 million rides faster than Uber and Lyft did. So it's really, if you look at the big picture, it's almost like a condensed version of what these companies went through. We went through it in just three years and it's really just getting started. I think COVID particularly showed to people that these type of industries are here to stay. It's not just a fad or a trend, but rather a true alternative to uh, private cars. Uh, and, and that is kind of just the beginning is, will there be a fourth type of modality or fifth type of modality that we will be introducing which are electrified and shared? What could those be? There's multiple other actors operating the space. How can we work together, build partnerships and really continue on this mission? I think anything that goes in the direction of providing alternatives to private cars on a short distance, electrified and shared, is something that we will be looking into, into doing. You've mentioned sustainability, durability. The shared kick scooter has been incredibly appealing to many consumers. It's accessible and approachable, easy to learn, but it has faced these challenges, as you point out, in terms of durability, how long will it last? And you mentioned your fourth generation. Were you able to use the scooters developed by the Jump team? Mm -hmm. When Lime acquired those assets, what are some of the things that Lime has done to improve durability and sustainability of these vehicles? Absolutely. I think just historically speaking, the, the industry used private scooters that were off the shelf in commercial uses. That's how the innovation started. The scooters were not originally designed for heavy use, et cetera. That's why they would have a short lifespan and, and there were critiques of that. So that's something we acknowledge that in the early days, this was it. But we, we understood that pretty early because even for the business to be sustainable in the future, you had to increase the durability of them. You had to make them break less in terms of repairs needed, et cetera. So over time, 
And over generations of Scooter, we tended to build our hardware in-house. Essentially, the third generation and the fourth generation are in-house Lime models. And for example, the third generation was built out of about modular design, which means if a piece breaks, you can just change the piece and not the whole scooter, so you don't have to recycle the whole thing, but rather you can continuously change spare parts and really extend the lifetime value of that, that scooter. The actual production process of the Gen 4 now is over like 98% using recyclable materials. The modality has even further increased, so it's like even less parts that need to be changed. They're more durable. And, and going back to your question about jump, th this would be an iteration on an improvement on the, the jump technology that we've had. So we are learning. We, we, I mean, jump deal was a very exciting deal in particular because you took the, the best operator in the micro mobility space with one of the companies that had the most exciting, innovative hardware. And that kind of marriage between an exciting hardware like the bikes and the scooters that are now kind of being iterated on and, and will be coming in the future with an updated version with the operational excellence that the Lime team has, that is a very exciting mix. And that is kind of the future in that sense. So you're right on the points you mentioned. And over time, we are learning and improving the hardware in a way that's longer or durable or environmentally friendly and recyclable for end of life as well. You mentioned operational efficiency, and it seems like vehicle design and operational efficiency are two sides of the same coin. And maybe mm -hmm. it's taken a little while for the industry to fully appreciate that. But have the improvements to scooter design helped Lime save money and improve operations? Yeah, there are multiple factors, but just on the, on the high level, there's a combination. There is the people and how they operate, the business model. So in the past, or even in the US, sometimes you would use what's, what's called individuals who would pick up scooters and charge them in-house. We, we stopped that. The model moved away. So in Europe, we don't do that. We don't have what's called or colloquially known as juicers. In, in Europe, we use full-time employees and contractors that work with us to charge the, the vehicles within our facilities. The actual hardware has also improved, like you said, so there's less breakage, so there's less time in, in the warehouse. So as you design and improve on the design, there's less downtime of the vehicle. It's always deployed, it's always utilized, that's quite good. There's improvements in the sense of operations. For example, our fourth generation uses swappable batteries, so that means you can keep the scooter in its place, and instead of returning it to the warehouse, you just swap out the batteries, which means there's more efficiencies because you can move batteries a lot easier within a city than transporting a large number of scooters or bikes. Something I'm particularly excited about is that our bikes and scooters have an interoperable battery. So we're the only ones that actually has multiple modes that actually share the same infrastructure. So the same teams can be deploying and supporting multiple operations. And over time, that is how you get efficiencies from an operational perspective, which is good for everyone. In reality, it's good for the environment. It's good for us as a business. It's good for users because more vehicles are available, there's less downtime, and cities are very happy with that. You mentioned safety also. There's been a number of questions around the safety of kick scooters, in particular, largely due to the form factor with a small wheel and an upright stance. How is Lime thinking about improving safety for riders? Is it vehicle design, rider education, or is it mostly infrastructure, like protected lanes to protect from cars? I think first, we, we do a lot of work in that space. There, we, we noticed that most of the incidents that happen are in the first 10 rides that people take. So 
in order to, to help there, we, we do a lot of rider education. So before you set it up, there's a number of rides that you can take for educational purposes, number of pop-ups, trying to explain to you how it works. We hold a number of what we call first ride events where Lime employees in partnership often with road safety organizations or, or in Europe, for example, with Allianz, which is an insurance uh, provider. We do these type of events to raise awareness on that. Then there's the actual hardware, like you mentioned. So yes, the new generation has larger wheels, better suspension, a lower floorboard. So your center of gravity is closer. You're more in control. It's less, you, you feel a lot more comfortable and it's a lot safer ride. The steering wheel is a bit bent so that you're more comfortable in your ride and you feel safer. So there is a hardware design element. There is a rider education element. There is our own technology in the sense of if you we can limit the speed certain ways. If you're not comfortable, you can put it on comfort mode, which will limit the speed further so that you don't go too fast. There's a number of things like on the technology side. And finally, infrastructure, of course, helps. I'm a bit biased. Given I live in Europe, the infrastructure is generally available. So the more bike lanes are there, absolutely, it will give you a sense of safety. But really, we try hard ourselves to work on hardware, rider education and technology. And we're very pleased to say that from what we have, like over millions of rides, we have around 99.9% rate of no incidents. So in a very, very few cases, there are incidents uh, that happen. Another issue that you mentioned that cities have is parking and clutter and scooters being left in ways that block pedestrians or wheelchair access. What would you like to see in terms of city infrastructure to help with parking? Is there something that cities can be doing or getting companies to work together to create some sort of shared infrastructure for parking and or charging to keep vehicles neat on the sidewalk? Yeah, it's a lot of cities are doing different experiments in that sense. I think what we've seen really succeed is when there's a real partnership between the city and operators on rider education. So I think a large part is people just don't know where parkings are. They don't know the parking rules. So operators have a responsibility to educate their riders on that. We've done a number of campaigns recently around rider education on that in Paris. And we've seen, you know, three-folds improvement in parking compliance in a sense. That's not the right word, but I, my English is not the best. But parking <laughs> compliance and, and people were parking better just because now they know where to park. They know what the rules are. And that's great for us because there are less complaints. It's great for the city because it's more organized. Uh, so rider education is, is a big part, and that's on us. I think cities also invested in a lot of dedicating park, parking spots. So it doesn't need to be physical in the sense of bays, but really just addressing areas and putting paint or whatever indications of, hey, this is an area for bikes and scooters and micromobility, and sharing that with us. So we put it on our application, and then we kind of encourage riders to park there. There are cities where you have to park there. It's, it's a mandatory thing. So it really depends. And I think the best way we've seen is whenever we work together with cities on establishing the infrastructure, doing the rider education, and, and continuously work in cooperation to make sure that parking um, is done adequately. We also have what's called parking patrols. So Rome is a great example where we have our own teams of employees that are patrolling the streets. And their job is to go to areas and make sure that our scooters are parked adequately. They're also mechanics. So it's a mechanic that is also doubling as a parking patrol officer. 
in a way. So they can also check it, make sure the scooter is safe, make sure that it's actually operational, and also be able to do minor fixes if there's any need. So it's that's the way that I think we will be kind of going forward in our operation. In the U.S., uh, many cities are worried about whether scooters and bikes are competing with public transit for riders or whether they, in fact, support trips on public transit. It's a little tough to make those judgments during COVID when so many people have stopped commuting to downtown areas or feel reluctant to take a bus or a train. Is that a discussion that you see in European cities? Are they worried about competing with transit or do they feel that if you want to ride a scooter instead of the subway that that's perfectly fine from an environmental and traffic perspective no it's definitely a debate i think it's a difficult time to determine that given COVID. but what i can tell you is that in the us for example we've seen a lot of data to point that people are actually leaving their cars behind and actually using scooters or bikes in order to move around the city i think in europe the data is more kind of the jury is still out on that but, but what we have seen most recently, because we're deploying multimodality at the moment, is that once you offer multiple choices for people, then the probability of them choosing an alternative to cars is actually higher. So that goes back to the point I made earlier, is that if you provide a bike, and a scooter, and a moped to, to people, when you ask them, would you choose one of our modes versus a car, they say yes. Cities really want their citizens to use uh, public transportation. And I think in Europe, it's really part of the ecosystem. And that is something that we understand. And so we do a lot of partnership with public transit operators. So, for example, in France, there's the French Parisian metro organizations called Ile de France Mobilité or RATP. So those are two organizations we partner with. And really, the, the idea is that if you want to use a metro, you're able to take a scooter from point A to metro station go to wherever you want to go and then use another scooter or bike in another direction. And how do we work together on that? And that is something in 2021, which is going to be a big priority for us in Europe, is how do we kind of continuously grow and expand our, our partnership with public transit operators, whether it's France, Germany, or other major uh, European countries. Obviously, Europe is still dealing with the effects of COVID, as is the United States. But how do you see the next year or so going for Lyme in Europe? Do you see rides coming back? And when do you expect to hear about the London tender? What is the timing of that decision? Yeah, on the London timing, I'm afraid I don't know at this stage, but it should be hopefully soon. And, and in Europe, I think we're very excited about 2021, despite the situation with COVID. Last summer showed a very encouraging science because even without tourism, the business was doing quite well. There is a need for this type of service at the moment. COVID only served to reinforce the fact that using micromobility, shared bikes, shared scooters is something that is safe. It gets you to different places. It's environmentally friendly. We have grown our bike footprint in the past year. We will continue to do so. We are just getting started with mopeds. So that's going to be another exciting project for 2021. And I, I am optimist. I hope it continues, but with vaccination as well as decreasing COVID rates, if between now and summer things get better, I'm very excited for the summer because people are really eager to get out travel, move around the city. There's a lot of kind of uh, a desire to live again. And if we can be there and make sure that people can go around and go have fun and go from point A to point B in a way that is enjoyable, safe and green, I have a very, very good sense of this year to come. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear what Lime is doing in Europe. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks again to Kassan for joining us. You can find the show notes for the podcast on our Substack publication at smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.